0: This is Jan Cox, talk number 2,584, recorded September 27th, 2000. What I have written here tonight and we're going to talk about, first I wasn't going to write anything, I was just going to talk, but it is based upon the last two nights. This is an exaggeration, no, an alleviation, an aggravation. It's an elaboration of what I've been talking about. That's it. so here goes there is one exercise in which everyone participates the bulking up of salt everyone knows what bulking up by now means even you people who are allergic to a gymnasium that's iron pumpers talk for putting on muscle putting on muscle mass bulking up The bulking up of salt is the exercise. And there is a way, and might I add, it's not written here, but it's an an extraordinarily surprising, it's almost unbelievable way to have, quote, gain without pain. Which again, for the benefit of you wimps, if you don't know the term, it's no pain, no gain. That is to bulk up, to put on muscle, you have to hurt yourself. To actually add muscle mass, you have to break down muscle tissue. That's why you lift weights. It's to tear it down and then keep working on it and when it comes back. Assuming that you are genetically average, the muscle mass becomes greater. But you must hurt yourself. You hurt, you actually destroy muscle tissue to bulk up. So that's a common phrase. Surely you hurt it. No pain, no gain. That is, if you're not working out, if you're not lifting enough weights... To burn your muscles for them to hurt then you're not going to gain any muscle mass it's that simple so the operative phrase amongst that crowd used to be and probably still is no pain no gain it's just a cliche they throw it to each other if one guy's moaning he's trying to bench press or some amount he never has and go ah somebody will say hey no pain no gain so back to my reading this one exercise I'm talking about that every, in which everyone participates, that is, quote, the bulking up of thought, there is a strange, a curious, it, it belies physics, as I just pointed out, biological physics. But, but there is a way in which you can have gain with no pain. <gasps> and I'm going to tell you why it is. Has it right here. It's by having critical thoughts about other people's thoughts. No exertion is required on your part to feel the illusion of your thoughts bulking up. It comes effortlessly, courtesy of your thoughts, attacking someone else's. The beauty of the approach is that you never have to bother with even trying. Trying trying to come up with your own thoughts to bulk up. All you have to do is criticize thoughts that are already out there. I was going to then go into just my contemporaneous remarks in a new area of Greek mythology. The last few nights since I've been trying to talk about this particular subject. It's been a mad dash in my head to come up with ways to talk about it. And Homer, or some of his ilk, did not let me down. There's another one. In fact, there's several. And I went ahead and wrote it down rather than me just to get it going. I went ahead and wrote down. This is my version. I entitle it, The Grand Intertwining of Two Great Myths and it was done for me they don't call it I don't believe to my recollection they do not refer to it as the combining of two myths it's just one myth it's one story but there's two in it for our purposes and again may I point out to you I don't know how much you people have tried to take that approach but when I have used this before even with Shakespeare and back when I was doing the Odysseus well, this is, and plenty of other things. I truly, not allegorically, but I truly see such as this, and I especially like the Homeric. I mean, we're talking about as old as Western literature gets. The myths, the Greek myths. I see it. Not although we'll assume men sit around and made these stories up. they built upon stories and they ended up, at least by Homer's time, that he was writing them down. They had become codified. They had beginnings and ends and there was a whole connection. They had invented now a whole hierarchy of the Greek gods and the semi-gods. But I do not see it as people inventing stories, especially back then. It's still true now with certain literature, well, all literature, but Back then, I see it as a very clear picture, and it's useful. I find it very useful. That's why I keep bringing it up to you. I see it more clearly than is any other era of time as the molecular activity in man's brain, down to that level, down to the neural level, down to one neuron, or the, the molecular activity, which is us, from... Crude from somatic physiology to neurology. I see it as the molecular activity in man striving back then, the first stirrings of it, as it was just getting cranked up. That is consciousness trying to conceive of itself, trying to explain to itself how did we get here. It's not men coming up with stories uh, like the biblical, the old testament you know, idea that you know, God made us. That's an attempt. But these other stories I see, I find them more interesting, and I find them more useful, that it is the molecular activity in man, literally. Picture, we're talking about a thousand years B.C., and the people staying around. We don't know how long men had been conscious, but let's assume it hadn't been that long, and over the, as they say, the geological time scale. But here it was, men would have been conscious, and the molecular activity was not going good, people were literate, they were becoming civilized and settled, sophisticated in a sense, and as soon as Adam, the molecules of Adam's brain, had invented the wheel, and cheese in a can, and all the important <laughs> stuff, the very next thing it did, it's just there, was it tried the molecules themselves, They're now alone. They are a singular activity in a man's body. There is nobody they can talk to. The molecular activity in the front lobes of the brain. They can't even talk to the other areas of the brain, the areas that are life-supporting. They have no one to talk to. They're the only ones that can reflect on themselves. That is, they're the only ones who are conscious, those little molecules, and they begin to try, call anything you want to, speculate, theorize, where did we come from? And I'm saying that these stories are it. I'm saying it is closer from my view and from my use than any other thing I've ever read. And I'm not all that familiar. There are myths I know in China and Japan and other areas of the world, but this is the one that I am, due to my background, most familiar with. But it is beautiful. So there's a story. You've heard the name of well oh, I won't at least in general, you'll be familiar. But it's a one myth, the way it's presented, but there are two in it. And it's exactly, I don't know why I didn't think of it earlier. Sure I do, but I just won't tell you. I don't know. <coughs> By the way, that was just a little non-humor on the side. It's two stories in one. All right. I wrote a real condensed version, and then I'll talk about it. Here it is. Hera, if, if you don't remember, that was Zeus's wife. And most of her appearances, to my recollection, most of her appearances throughout Greek mythology had to do with one thing, and that was catching Zeus with other women. That was the only role. In fact, she is called the the, uh, the goddess of marriage. But I think someone since then has pointed out, according to the stories, it wasn't just the goddess of marriage, it was the goddess... Of wives, wives put up on. Because if you don't recall, Zeus, that was his big time. Zeus, as anthropo- anthropologist in Alabama used to call it, Zeus seemed to be a pussyhound, a skirt chaser, if you will. Anyway, that's who Hera was. Hera concluded that the charmingly inventive poetress Echo. That was her name. Was having an affair with her old man Zeus and his punishment decreed that Echo would be forever doomed to speak the last word, but never the first. And from that day on, all that Echo could do was repeat what others said to her. And if this was not bad enough for one with a deep love of words and mental images, she then fell smitten by narcissus but could not express to him her affection which as it turns out was no great loss to him in that he himself was already cursed to love no one but himself and in fact perished through neglect and distraction as he sat immobile by a pine and pined away for his own reflection. Since I went to the trouble to write it, that's why I couldn't resist reading it. Here, make sure you understand what the story was. Uh, Echo, now keep this in mind. Echo wasn't named for what we call echo. And the Greeks by then, they knew what an echo was. And so, the people, the molecules, in men's brain that made up the story, now you know damn well, by the time people were illiterate, people had hollered into a, a canyon or into a garbage can. They knew what an echo was. So, the molecules of the people inhabiting that area, <coughs> Homer, if you will, named the figure, capital E, named this poetress. This young, she was supposed to be the fairest of the wood nymphs. They named her Echo. It's not a, as I said, she wasn't just some made-up name and then later men discovered Echoes. No, no, remember that. Don't get misled. Homer, or the the collection of the Greeks that put it together, they knew what they were doing. The story. I say the molecules behind this. So here we have it. Hera is again, she had decided that there was one area where there was a bunch of wood nymphs, and that Zeus had been hanging around there, and she was just sure that he was having an affair. That's why he was missing, was always there. So she went down, the way the story goes, and was immediately struck by the center of attraction of the wood was a girl named Echo, who was a lyric poetress. And she was charming, she was always the center of attention, had a way with words, and that's about all it was said. But she was just, and said at first, even Hera, was taken by her that she was so entertaining but then she decided actually she looked around that since she was the center of attention everybody looked at her at any rate Hero decided this is the one <coughs> and so she went from being charmed by her momentarily herself to putting a curse on her and did she do it the right way and i repeat again don't look and give credit to let's assume that homer did write this that there was a guy named homer that actually wrote this don't give homer credit Think back 1,000 B.C., the molecules in somebody's brain, the molecular activity in a group of people's brains. Think about it. They came up with this story, and it gets better and better. Of course, I'm going to make it better than anybody's ever imagined. To my taste, but hell, I'm the only person I have to ultimately satisfy. Hedra decided that's her, and of course, she's not going to get away with it. And here I can't remember. But, you know, she used to do all, you know, turn people into dogs and all kinds of things. But here it was, she picked out just the right punishment. She said, "The punishment was: you will forever be limited to having the last word, but you will never have the power to have the first word." Does anybody know where I'm going to go with this in a minute? I'm talking about ordinary thought. That's what the molecular activity known as thought was, I say to you, that made up that story. It's the thoughts looking at themselves. I'll get to that in a minute. Of course, it was conveyed in that first thing I wrote about the ability to have gain with no pain. And you do it by never having the first word. But anyway, back to the story. After that, after that curse, Echo could only... And there were... Somewhere in the original telling of the stories, there were a few examples, supposedly. After that, people would speak to her. And she couldn't say anything back except whatever they said. So imagine someone whose life was built around their interest and words... Which, as far as I'm concerned, is just word-slice mental activity. And now is stuck with that. She is no longer a creative person. She is no longer a poetress by any means. You can't call yourself a poetress. All that infers something creative, something alive. She can now only repeat. If somebody says, it's good to see you, all she can say is, it's good to see you. Or, where are you going? Where are you going? As if that wasn't bad enough, which it should have been. Then, one of the stories, there are several I know, there's no one that's almost as good, of the young man Narcissus, who was supposedly a real looker. He now appears in this story, one of the times, one of the myths he appears in, that already all the wooden elves and everyone else who ever sees him, every girl that ever sees Narcissus, falls madly in love with him, And he ignores them all. And it turns out, and nobody can get his attention. He just walks right past. He won't listen to anybody trying to talk to him. They're always making, shall I say, suggestive remarks to the young boy. And he just walks right past. And it turns out that he has been cursed. He is operating under a curse. And the curse is this, that he can love none but himself. And supposedly, according to the story, he was already under the curse before the first time he ever came up on a water pond. But as soon as he did, it says, that was the end of him. Because he will, when he looked in, he was so taken by his own reflection, as he then understood why he'd been missing his life. And why everybody was always hollering at him, and then picking on why he wouldn't return women's. He looked down and fell madly in love with himself. That was his curse to such a degree that it caused his death that he would not leave the pond. And I believe that the English translation is he pined away, which sounds like good southern talk, but maybe was from maybe Homer was from southern Greece. But that he and I added some of it because it still fits the description that I say through self neglect and distraction. That is distracted from his instinctive self, his instinctive life. He sat there and through being distracted from his own mind, because remember, it's his mind, it's his thoughts, he perished. When all that story came back to me, I went back and dug up what little I could find handily. It's astounding. To me, it's astounding how apropos it is to what I've been talking about. So much so that, as I like to say sometimes, I'd like to just quit and leave for the night and let you do it. I can be talked into that. Let's jump back to my thing about the uh, exercise first. You understand this is a trick, don't you? Before I get into this. Let me go back to the completely original aspect of what I wrote tonight, which was that I say that there is one exercise in which everybody on this planet participates unknowingly. And it's what I have been talking about. It is the bulking up of thought. And for those of you who have been here for the last two nights, Well, especially Monday night. I was pointing out several ways, and they're everywhere, but I was pointing out several ways that thought attempts to bulk itself up. I even threw in a version I didn't do Monday in today's daily news. The continual excessive talk in general I could say is the method by which thought attempts to give itself a feeling of palpable reality. It also does so in a more specific manner in continual references to the past, the rehashing of the past, suffering over the past, having a neurosis, continually talking about yourself. I should say it's the thoughts talking about themselves, talking about it. it seems to be that you are thinking about your life. But what that does is it gives the impression. I don't have to tell you. I can keep trying to come up with new synonyms for give the impression, give the feel. It is. It cannot be clearer to me. And if you'll keep looking at it, and if you're really taking this sincerely, I can't believe that most of you won't get a glimpse of it. And I bet you will knock you around. I'm going to make you laugh out loud to see how hollow, to see how transparent it is once you see it. Because it does no good, as I admit. or I I don't see it does any good initially to, to say, although it's accurate, but to say that thoughts do not exist. I know I've said it, and you knew that I didn't, I would normally say something else afterwards. But it does no good to say that thoughts do not exist because you sit there and hear it and however you take it, if you accept it or reject it, it was a thought accepting or rejecting it and so you don't even have to analyze it. Based upon the operation, based upon your actual reaction to it, it belies my comment to say that thoughts don't exist. Well, if you heard that, that's proof that thoughts exist because your thought heard it. We know your ear heard it, but without thoughts, what I said would just been noise. So for me to say thoughts do not exist, and I'm serious, I mean that, thoughts do not exist. The only way you can hear that for better or for worse, in a positive or negative way, is by your own thought. And so therefore, you know, where can you go with it to begin with? The exercise that I wanted to point out specifically... The rest of them, they're all sort of subsections, but this is the big subsection to me. It's criticism of all sorts. And it's only been three or four nights ago. I brought it up again to try to get you to thinking about it that I insist. I challenge you to look damn way over 95%. Of everything that people talk about, everything that people write about, everything that people put in scripts of movies, television, books of fiction, reporting of the news, reporting on the state of the union, family members, friends, lovers talking to one another, I challenge you, am I wrong? Is, 95, is 95% is plus, is that an incorrect figure for me to say that it's whining, it's criticism, it's complaining, it's fault-finding? Which is all criticism, is what I mean by that. But look at what criticism does if you get a glimpse of what I've been trying to point to that thought is continually, continually, relentlessly trying to bulk itself up, trying to give the impression of some actual materiality, some mass, some volume, some girth, some weight. It's funny, really. Trust me, you will laugh, and it'll be like somebody took a load off your face. But look what criticism does. It is the one thing. My one day had the adjectives, even after I'd written it, of it, it's unbelievable. It's unnatural. Thoughts. Of course, you got to remember this whole thing is an imaginary game. They're not actually. But thoughts, as far as they're concerned. Are able to belie the laws of physics, the laws of nature, because they can apparently put on bulk, add to themselves while making no effort, because that is what all criticism is. You know, I used to write a lot for a while. I went through a period, if you recall, for you paying attention, that I really laid on critics. And I point out to you that I was meant more than just picking on literal critics. I never did hand out a questionnaire to see what you got out of it, but it's about time that it paid off, whatever you tried to do. Look at it. You pick up anything. Let's say a, a, a well-respected magazine, the New York, Book of, uh, New York Book Review. And the reviewers uh, are usually people with uh, very uh, recognized reputations, academic background. I mean, if there's a new book out on the psychology of uh, 20th century American man, then the book reviewer of that particular book will end up, will be a man with several, well, at least a doctorate degree and probably teaching psychology at Harvard, Yale, and it will list several books that may mention that he currently, his textbook, such and such is currently considered to be the Vady Mecum, the leading, uh, most widely used text, on the psychology of 20th century man. So there it is, a man with that kind of background, and a man that we would all assume, safely, is a true, quote, intellectual in the ordinary sense. And there he is, he got paid to write whatever it is, a thousand words, probably got paid a thousand dollars or more, I don't know, but got paid, he didn't do it for free. To do what? Well, first off, of course, to make sure they list who this is reviewing the book. His name will be as big as the author of the book, if not bigger. At least as prominent. There it is. He got out his name, his own background, his own credits for his own books in this area, his own expertise. And so then he spends 1,200, 1,500 words doing what? I say, if you can see it now, you know I'm I'm about to be dramatically, artificially dramatic. I'm just saying this. I'm trying to get you to see. He then does what? A man who spent 12 years in college, university, has written all of these books, lectures. Besides his tenure at wherever he's teaching, he spends the rest of his free time making appearances to bolster... To support his reputation, which in the world, secondary world, you know, when you're in the world of activities that you can't eat or that won't roof your house, you have got to continually support your reputation or it will go into the pig trough. The imaginary balloons won't stay up without people puffing in them. So here he is. I'm getting into the theatrical sarcasm. I want you to get it. Here he is, gets his name there, reads the damn book, and then spends, who knows what, probably two or three days, maybe 20 hours, because it's considered to be a big deal to have that kind of review published. And I'm sure it's not the first draft after he'd read the book. It's probably not the 10th gra- draft. He probably had even some of his graduate students going through him. So it's considered to be, I'm sure, when he, that sort of man puts the thing out, turns it over to the editors of the New York Times Book Review, Review of Books, that he has put in many hours, much thought, and it's probably into the several decades of additions. And there it is. From one view, I'm sure that he wants to consider it as like a 1,200-word, small but beautiful many-faceted, poignant gem. Not a huge diamond, not like the hope diamond of a 1,200-page textbook, but the distillation of a lifetime of experience and insight and wisdom that he's read this other man's book. And here is his review of it. So for 1,200 words, this little Peterhead whines and cries and finds misspellings And, well, I don't hardly think so-and-so. And (laughs) And you read it, and you think, well, wait a minute, I remember reading his book many years ago, and I was very impressed. I carried that book around, and now I read this, and I'm ashamed I ever read that. What kind of little shit-ass, what kind of damn child, how did he get a degree? Does anybody get the point? He's a leech and a bloodsucker a cannibal he's not an intellectual an intellectual a man with any sense he wouldn't lower himself to begin with to read somebody else's book but then to admit it then to admit it publicly to write about it well all that's bad enough but then to write about it Jesus does anybody get it (coughs) My little sarcastic show there is pitiful. That shows how stupid I would be if I meant that. Because that is cleverness. Don't even bother looking in the dictionary next to cleverness. Don't bother to see what's there. It's that. Now, of course, I do not limit this to... Literary, professional criticism in the New York Times or Harper's or New Yorker. People do it at the lowest, most mundane, meaningless level. And, as I say, 95% of all things they talk about are criticisms. But look at what the molecular activity of men's ordinary brains or ordinary men's brains have done. I'm telling you what they are doing other than the times that they're involved with some specific problem-solving, something to enhance your life and your survival. The rest of the time, you know what they're doing. You know, we call it where they're sleeping. They're distracted. They're a virus. They're an annoyance. They're the manifestation of being asleep. And what are they doing? I'm telling you that what they're doing is bulking up the impression that they have some mass. But they have found how to do it that belies the laws of physics. Because, again, remember, the whole thing's an illusion. But to them, it's real. What they have found how to do is to put on mass, that is, to bulk up, with no effort. You don't even have to pick up a damn fucking weight. All you do is you walk in, you sit down on a bench there in the gym, and all you do is make fun make fun of everybody else exercising. That's it. You're not required to make any effort. That is how. I don't know whether you want to follow this. That is how. Well, I brought it up several times. Again, I don't know whether any of you have tried to follow it. How is it? Does it not impress any of you enough to follow it that the world constantly, if you go back away, constantly, every, every time you look down and find two people and one of them's mouth moving and they're facing each other, it's a song. But it's a duet. If there are three people, it's a trio. They're singing. And nobody knows the song they're singing. That is, the conversation, it just flows. Nobody knows what they're going to say next, much less what the other person will say next. And yet you react instantly in an appropriate manner. And then maybe a third person goes, ah, and then they chime in. Maybe it's just, ah, but that was their note. How do all these songs, let's say out of the six billion people that there are three billion songs going on at any particular time, that half the people are talking to the other half for a minute, a few seconds, and the other half talk back. How do these songs go on? How is it that these conversations just flow effortlessly? And nobody knows what the other person is going to say so that they know how to react next. Not to mention the fact that they don't know what they're going to say anyway. So forget how they're going to react. That's just stalling the inevitable question about... Well, we all know by now, I assume you do, the, the conversations other than my exception having to do with life survival and enhancement, they're meaningless. Of course, the ordinary people are very meaningful and people are getting fights over them. But when I assume you know, it is just bullshit. It's just a form of social bonding, if you want to look at it from that kind of view. It is just simply cows all out together and they moo every now and then to let the other cows know I'm here or to maybe somebody recognize my moo. The conversations are meaningless. Nothing wrong with them but there's nothing significant. But it's serving a purpose constantly because as long as you're part of that mechanical flow, that worldwide conversation, that worldwide singing, and you're an ordinary person, and nobody analyzes this, I'm the only person I ever know that's ever done it this way. But I can see it. It is a beautiful explanatory picture. Very useful to me. I believe to you. It's the thoughts. Don't try to take it any other way. Take it exactly like I'm saying. I've been careful the way I've been describing it to you. I didn't say mind or that. It's thoughts themselves through this continual conversing. And remember, I'm pointing out that most of the conversing is criticism of other people's conversing. That is, it's your thoughts, one man's thoughts, that are critical of other men's thoughts. And that's what most of it is. its Their thought. It requires no effort. You are never the ordinary molecular activity, an ordinary man's brain is not required to come up with anything even resembling an original thought. Never. I bet you never saw that. Well, right quick view. Education. The whole thing about learning. Does it have anything to do with having an original thought? Well, not hardly. You don't get a degree for having an original thought. You don't take a test. You don't come up, you know, taking a graduate test in whatever your class was. You know, the professor in psychology, sociology, chemistry. You don't get extra grade, much less a passing grade, to give original answers. The questions having to do with chemical equations, laws of physics. You don't come... <laughs> instead of giving the correct answer having to do with the law of friction, you know, whoever it is, I can't remember the law of... can't think of one. Heat? Maxwell's... whatever the hell is Theorem? Instead of giving, you know... whatever the question was, and the answer is supposed to be Max, uh, Maxwell's theorem. You decide to be original there in your chemistry class or your physics class. And let's assume your name's Hubert, and you put... Well, that's covered quite nicely by Hubert's theorem. You do not get pet that is not what you that's not what education's for. I'm out of the way to make that little point, which wasn't the real point. You are not required to have anything resembling an original thought. We're we're bypassing, you know, the question of does anybody have an original thought anyway? But I'm just saying from an ordinary view. From that ordinary level, you are not required. No one is required. The man, this man with the great credentials and reputation writing the book review in the New York uh, review, just look at it. Now, if you ask him, he would say that his review is original. And it's the views that he, the critiques he offers, the view he has of this other man, the author's work. He would say that's It's original. Do not let your thoughts fool you, my friends. He's a cannibal. He's licking up blood. He's eating scraps. But you understand, and I'm not picking on the man, as you know. I'm trying to get you to see the way thought works. That man, the reviewer, if he heard me do, really, excoriate him, and drag him through the verbal coals like I just did here with you, And I said, there's nothing original about being a critic. It's laughable. He probably wouldn't even get upset. He would probably just be inclined to dismiss me with no further reaction. But if he did, he might say, uh, you know, sir, (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with you. I wrote that 1,200 words. And in fact, I wrote it many times. I did, I revised it. I read that book carefully. I read it about twice. I can show you my earlier drafts. I put much, I'm talking about much intellectual effort. As a matter of fact, I put as much intellectual effort into writing this 1,200-word review as I did probably my last book, which ran over 400 pages. That's how seriously I take that. In fact, you look in there and you t- you find anything, you find any trace of plagiarism. You find where my views, my criticism of Dr. So-and-so's work here, his book, You find me just an iota. Anything resembling someone else's opinion of this, someone else's view. Show me where my view of the psychology of 20th century American man. Show me anything I wrote here that you can say that definitely that you can pinpoint. So that's not original to you. He would say to me that whole thing. I am a quite original thinker. You must not know I, I have 10 books published. You do not get that way by being Non-original, uncreative. And of course, that would dismiss just what I said. Does anybody see through it? Well, all right, just take this. I could tell him, well, do you see it or not? I don't know. I right, tell him, all right, go back and take back, look through the words, read each word there, each sentence at least, but and take out every sentence that has anything to do with his book, <laughs> that has any connection to his book. Take it out and then they see what you got. And he'll have a blank page. I'm saying to you, if you can see it, that is what everyone's mind, that is their thought repertoire, consists of. Or it's in the same situation. If you went into an ordinary person's brain, or their mind, if you insist, and you took out, and there was, they had X number of thoughts, a trillion thoughts, if you could take out every thought they have, every idea they have, that was not connected to, was not sp- spawned, spawned by someone else's thought. that was not a reaction to someone else's thought, a criticism of someone else's thought, but a reaction to their thought. What would you have in a, ma- in a person's thought bank? I say nothing. I'm not going into it now that I brought it up, but metaphysically speaking, there would have to be at least one thought left, maybe two, but we'll let that go. I mean, what's two out of a trillion? But do you get it? In the same way I assume you got it, that I say that if we could have the reviewer who insisted and proved to an ordinary man's satisfaction that his review was nothing but a series of original views of this other man's work some criticism but the criticism was based upon his original thinking he was not simply criticizing dr x's new book on the basis that someone else had already criticized it and he was just joining in beating up on him even if that was true that other people had already criticized the book my reviewer man i'm talking about he would say no 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 i'm making a point i didn't even read anybody's review i knew that he had already been reviewed but everything I did was my, based on my own original thinking, my own original research, my own original ideas. But I assume that you get what I'm saying. If I ask him and he w- would hear me literally and understood it, and if I said, well, go back and take out every sentence that does not in some way refer to Dr. X's book, that is Dr. X's thoughts, what would you have? He would have to take out every sentence in there and I'm saying that if you can follow this, it's in you. It's everywhere. You're surrounded by it. That's why I have for years picked on criticism and bitching, mechanical conversation for all kinds of reasons. If you could look in your mind, your thought bank, anyone else's, and took out every thought out of every human that had not been sparked by someone else's thought in the same way that my book reviewer every sense he wrote was sparked by was a reaction to what he read in Dr. X's book Professor X's book you surely understand that I'm saying that in the, everyone's mind in their collection of thoughts if you took out every thought that in some way had been a reaction to a thought that was already out there Someone else's thought, even if you do not know whose it was, it's just a thought that's out there. You'd have no thought. How come everybody doesn't fall down and go, oh my God. I guess you're just doing a, most of you are too civil, aren't you? Too genteel. You wait until you get home, right? That is what criticism, in the fullest sense of the word it really is almost any comment you make upon other people's thoughts. Any comment you make upon anyone else's thought, forget about there was a waste of time, it was criticism, it was was small-minded, it was uncalled for. It was the thought, your thought that went, ah, Jesus, that's pretty lame that you say about something that somebody else said. That was the thought that just said that. That was that thought's attempt. And I say, Damn impressive attempt to balk itself up when there's nothing to it. There's a paper thinness, there's that much. But there's nothing to it, and it has balked itself up. It has given the impression. And it succeeds at the moment. Or it wouldn't keep doing it. Anyway, I I can't prove it. I know it succeeds. And I don't have to look. I don't have to investigate it. All I gotta do is get up in the morning. I don't even have to get up in the morning. I gotta do is lay in bed. Assuming i could still got my own head on. Thoughts give themselves the impression of having added mass, bulk, gravitas, significance. But I say it beyond significance. I shouldn't even say gravitas. That it's not even a matter. I know people say it is after the fact that they won't be considered intelligent. We, we know how that goes. But I'm saying that the real bottom line is, it's not even that. It's thoughts just won't. To have the impression that there's more to them than there is, which is damn near nothing. And so anything beyond that is just, you got some free chocolate syrup and a cherry. To be considered, for your thoughts to be considered weighty, impressive, meaningful, significant, definitive. Now we know that that drives much of the world. It drives most of everybody's ordinary mind at different levels, all the way from a bricklayer. He wants to be considered by his peers to be a first-class bricklayer, not just physically, but they can stand around and be talking about jobs later at a bar. And he wants to be able to verbally express an opinion to say something about, well, when you, you know, if you're going to lay a fireplace and it's, you're going into concave curves, then you, you know, need to not only start dealing with half bricks and whatever they talk about, but for him to say it, and other bricklayers staying around, or at least other people listen to that and go, huh. Or at least show that they, they give some respect. Like, hmm, I hadn't thought of that, or boy, you you nailed that. So at that level, all the way from that to the world of academia, there's no doubt thoughts want to be taken to be intelligent, significant. But I'm telling you, that is just gravy. That's just dessert. Really, Because what they want foremost is to be taken as having some damn near palpable substance to them when they do not. And all you got to do is look over their shoulder. You got General Potemkin and behind him, nothing but the open steps, the open plains of Russia. There's nothing behind the front. But see, as always in stories, molecularly, you can play all parts. You're also Catherine the Great blithely galloping by at the side of General Potemkin who had this all put up last night. And he said, just look at how beautiful the small villages and how happy the people are here in their beautiful homes. And you bob right along and you go, oh, Well, I'm glad to know things are going so well. She's part of the same molecular conspiracy. She knew there's nothing behind those buildings. Thoughts know there's nothing behind them. That's why they yak. And that's why they criticize. Because now you're laying off somebody else's yakking. Notice I ran out of time and didn't get to elaborate on the story of Echo and Narcissus. You thought I didn't know what I was doing, didn't you? <laughs> Only 65 more seconds. You may explain the whole thing in light of what I just said. Mm-hmm. No! Forget it. Maybe later. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at JanCox.com, where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest, or just leave us a message.